All right, well, we're in our sermon series titled Spiritual Living, and and so far in this letter of James, he has shown us that God uses trials in our lives to shape us so that we become more and more like Jesus Christ. Today, James shows us how God's Word also shapes us to be more like Christ. So let me ask you, how important to you are the Scriptures? Does God use the Bible in your daily life to transform you? James helps us to see that with the Word of God, our lives come alive. James chapter 1, verses 19 through 27. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness that God requires. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained in the world. This is the word of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. If we want to know God, if we want to know his will, if we want to know his way, we must know his word. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you um, that you have showered upon this earth your word, which is alive. Um, it is active. It transforms us. It shows us um, our flaws, but also shows us the grace that allows you to overcome them in us. We pray for softened hearts here. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would have your way um, in the preaching of your word and in the hearing of your word, that we may be more than just hearers, but doers as well, we pray. Amen. Well, we're getting close to that time of year where gardeners get antsy and excited. It's that time of year when they, you go online or you open up the catalogs and you, and you look at all the different seeds that you want to plant, you know, tomato seeds and cucumber seeds and pepper seeds and all the more. And then a few weeks before the final frost, the, the gardeners will what? They will plant those seeds in an indoor seed bed and they will give water and life, which brings life to the seed. Now, wouldn't it be foolish if the gardener, once the seeds sprout, plants them outdoors under a canopy where it is dark and where no rain can penetrate? See, the sun and the rain must continue to give plants life or they will wither and die. That is what James is saying here this morning, but not with regard to plant life. He speaks of our lives in Christ James wants us to see that the ongoing, he wants us to see the ongoing importance of the Word of God in our lives. It's not just necessary for the sprouting of new life, it is for the growth of our lives all throughout our lives. In the verse right before ours, in verse 18, 
James said that God gives a, a new birth. How? He says, God brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. In this verse, right before our passage, James says that the word of God germinates in us new life where we are able to bear fruit. Now, in our passage today, it's all about how this word of God continues to be sun and rain for our souls. James presses home to his readers just how necessary the word of God is in our lives. The point that he's making this morning is this. Listen, we must be transformed by the word of God because by it, God gives us life. As we look at that main idea, we're going to divide our time into three areas. First, we must be transformed by the word of God because by it, God grows us. Then we must be transformed by the word of God because by it, God blesses us. And lastly, by it, God tests us. First, we must be transformed by the word of God because by it, God grows us. James is showing us, here's the big idea of this point. James is showing us that the word of God, when properly implanted in you, grows you in a way in which you were made to grow. You mature as a Christian. Now, is it not possible that Christians can get older but not mature? This concerns James, and it must concern us as well. First, James addresses our lack of maturity. Look at verses, uh, it, goes to the, it goes to the heart of the matter, and it's our tongues. Look at verses 19 and 20. He says, know this, my beloved brothers. He loves them. Let every person be what? Quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of a man does not produce the righteousness of God. Let me ask you, when was the last time that you got angry at someone and by being angry, you helped them and healed them? It doesn't happen, does it? James says, be quick to hear, slow to speak and slow to anger. You know, this is the opposite of what our world separate, celebrates, isn't it? The world looks up to people who pridefully say things like, I don't suffer fools. I let them have it. And we applaud the football player who reacts angrily at the official who he thinks blew the call. And Christians are not immune to anger either. Yes, the Bible says there is such a thing as righteous anger. It's a sinless response to the sin and the brokenness of this world. But isn't it true? Rarely is our anger Righteous. Usually our anger is the run of the mill anger that gets angry at slow drivers and difficult teachers and, of course, those politicians. How are you with anger? See, anger is something that we all suffer from to more or less a degree. Now, do you know what gives me hope this morning? Jesus does. How so? Well, why did so many people, upon sitting with Jesus, feel so loved and understood and cared for? Because Jesus was quick to listen. People brag, I don't suffer fools, but Jesus suffered fools gladly. You and I were once fools, were we not? If we've never confessed that we were fools, then we've never become wise in God's eyes. Jesus, our Savior, was patient with us. 
He was quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to become angry with us. Now, how much more so us towards others? After saying we're to be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger, James writes of the greater work that God does in us by his word so that we can mature in Christ's likeness. Look at 21, verse 21. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. You know, sometimes scripture depicts sinners as um, being dressed with filthy, dirty clothes. And the reality is that every Christian, that every Christian experience after this new birth is that filthiness still clings to us, does it not? And so, like clothes that are soiled from a hard day's labor, our response to God's grace is that we want to discard the filthiness and this wickedness and and walk in this new holiness that God has given us in Christ. You know, I think a good illustration of this comes from John chapter 11, John's Gospel. If you remember, that's where we see Mary and Martha are grieving because their dear brother Lazarus has died and he's been four days already in the tomb. Jesus finally arrives at the tomb and Lazarus' body is in there and it's wrapped in grave clothes. And the King James says, by this time, he stinketh. Jesus stands outside the tomb and he cries out with a word. He says, Lazarus, come out. By a word of the Son of God, Lazarus is risen to new life. And then Jesus says, unbind him. Let him go. Get him out of those stinking grave clothes, that filth that clings to him. Let him go. In a similar way, you and I must look at the filth and the wickedness of this world that still clings to us. And we must put it all away. We must not take the sin that still clings to us and think that it matters not. It all must go. Every last stinking bit of it. How? James says that it's the Word of God received in humility that empowers us to do so. Look at verse 20, 21. Received with meekness the implanted Word which is able to save your souls. The word meekness can also be translated with the word humility. James is saying, instead of applauding your sin or making excuses for it like the rest of the world does, instead, in humility, see it for the filth that it is, and then receive from God the implanted word which he's given you. You know, implants are very common in um, this modern world, right? Okay, not those kind of implants. I'm talking about other medical implants like heart valves and pumps and even ear implants can, can help you to hear better. What is the implant that enables us to hear in such a way that it transforms our lives? Sinclair Ferguson says it's the word itself. He says what we need as Christians is not just for the word to be heard, but for it to be implanted. And for the word to be implanted, it needs to be received 
with meekness. What does this look like? Well, when we come to the Word of God, whether it's in the privacy of our own home or in a study group or even here on Sundays, we need to come to the Word of God with an attitude that says something like this. Whatever your Word says, God, whatever it says, no matter how the Scriptures challenge me, I will receive it and let it challenge me. And guess what? When this is our true disposition, amazing things happen. You'll find that God implants His Word in you and it changes you. And you no longer react to the circumstances in life like you used to. And you actually become surprised at yourself. You find yourself saying, you know, two years ago, I would have ran out of that meeting angry at my boss. But now, by God's grace, I am quick to hear and slow to speak and slow to become angry. God is growing me by his implanted word. So we must be transformed by the word of God because by it, God grows us. We also must be transformed by the word of God because by it, God blesses us. In this next section, if you have your Bibles open to the passage in front of you, verses 22 through 25, James makes a bold statement. He's he's saying essentially, when you don't just hear the word, but you live it out, um, the more you do that, the more, not less, you become free. This is the blessing that God's grace towards you and me that he gives us. You know, James gives this illustration of a man who looks in a mirror, quickly looks into the mirror, and then walks away and just utterly forgets kind of what he's like. James is making two points with this illustration. First, Scripture is what? It's like a mirror for our souls. Just as we gaze at a physical mirror to inspect and maybe improve our physical appearances, so too we should gaze into the spiritual mirror to inspect and improve our spiritual appearance. Second point he makes is this. Like a mirror, Scripture discloses our sin, our need of repentance, but also the promise of God's grace towards us. It reveals our need for pressing the gospel deeper into our lives. Therefore, what we see in Scripture we should remember long enough to amend that which is amiss in us. See, it's foolishness to sit under the authority of Scripture, to look at yourself and what growth still remains, and then turn away and forget it. And yet, if we're honest, myself included, that's often what we do. We'll see a passage of Scripture and we'll see how it really applies to us, and then the next day we go on as if, well, we never even read it, right? That is why James says in verse 21, but be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. You know, the worst kind of deceit isn't when others deceive you, but when you are self-deceived. When others deceive you, you can see right through it, can't you? But the problem is when you're self-deceived is that you don't even know you're deceiving yourself. But the word of God can penetrate Your self-deception. That's what it's there for. But you must come before it in humility, expecting Scripture to reveal truth that currently may be hard for you to accept. It's only then that you begin to grow. 
When we hear phrases like be doers of the word, now we tend to think of the outward commands that we do and other people see us and we're good Christians because we've done this and we've been to there and that. And certainly good deeds has that reality. James is in some way talking about that. But a doer of the word isn't just someone who does good outwardly. No, first a work must be done within. That is why James speaks of the implanted word. Listen, an outward doing of God's word without an inward doing of God's word is what? Hypocrisy. Hypocrisy, which is unfortunately found in the church, is outward good deeds without inward renewal of the gospel. But when you look intently into the word of God, which is able to save you, and you say, yes, you're far more messed up and sinful than you ever imagined, but at the very same time, you're far more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than you ever dared imagine, it's then that you begin to see what percolates inside of you. This implanted word transforms you. And it gives you what? It gives you, gives you life. When you look intently at the Word of God and simultaneously see your sin and filthiness and see the cross of Jesus Christ, how He took all of your filthiness upon Himself. And when we see that, we press this deep inside of us, uh, we come alive. You know, our, our church's motto is lived out. Remember our church's motto? What is it? Alive in Christ. When this reality of being alive in Christ is implanted in you, you experience God's blessing in this life and in the life to come. And as James says, you experience liberty, freedom. Not bondage, but freedom. How so? Verse 25. But the one who looks into the perfect law, how does he describe it? The law of liberty. And perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Now, most people who aren't genuine Christians think that Christianity is an invitation to bondage. That God has all these laws that you're to become a slave to, which in the end just really turns you into a judgmental hypocrite, you know. But the truth is actually the opposite. Let me ask you, when did God give his law, like, like the Ten Commandments? When did it come to God's people? Did it come before or after he liberated them out of bondage in Egypt? It was after, right? Redemption, God's grace, comes first. Then the law, the beautiful law that shows God's people how to live in relationship with him and with each other. God didn't say live under the bondage of the law and then maybe one day I'll redeem you if you're good enough. Some of you really need to hear this today. Some of you don't yet believe in Christ. You think that forgiveness or salvation will come to you only after you straighten out your life. No, when the Israelites, guess what? When the Israelites were still in bondage in Egypt, they were a pitiful bunch. Whining, complaining, doubting, faithless. But God saved them anyway. Why? And this is what, this is where the hinge of Christianity is right here. Why? Because salvation is an act of God's 
free grace. It's not based upon the worthiness of the recipient. If salvation depended upon the worthiness of mankind, then no human being would ever be worthy enough to receive salvation. God's grace comes first, then the law. First the relationship, then comes the house rules for how we live together. So the child of God does not obey to earn God's favor. She delights to obey God's law because she already has God's favor. That's the message of Christianity. The message of Christianity isn't go and be a good Christian. The message of Christianity is, is, is uh, Christ has been the good Christian for you. You receive from him his perfect life by trusting in him. Now, this is why we need to be a doer, not just a hearer of God's word. See, a doer of God's word cares first and foremost for what? What's going on on the inside. And so she's able to hold scripture up like a mirror and look at it in meekness and humility and agree with it. Yes, I'm a person who's prone to self-deception, she'll say. I've made excuses for my sin. I've ignored my sin. I've said that they do not matter at all. But now, because your word is implanted in me, I see my sin and I really desire for the help of the Holy Spirit to put it away. That's how transformation takes place. And you see, it is then that we are truly set free, right? Think about it. How freeing is it to not live with self-deceit. It's very freeing. How freeing is it to say, God made me for His glorious purposes, and now, now, finally, I know who I was made to be. I've been set free to live for God and for my fellow neighbor. I'm free to walk in liberty, to take off these filthy clothes that hinder me. Now, for the Christian here. Let me ask you, are you living in any sort of self-deception? Have you gotten so comfortable with your so-called Christian life that you cannot remember the last time you held your life up to the Word of God and in humility repented? I mean, really repented. Where you're like, you're just crying out, God have mercy. The Word of God has a tendency to do that in our lives when we sit under it in meekness and in humility. We must be transformed by the Word of God because by it it grows us and by it God blesses us. We must also be transformed by the Word of God because by it God tests us. And how does the Word of God test us? It tests us as to whether we relate to Him and relate to this world correctly. We call relating to God and relating to people in his creation correctly, we call that religion. Now, I know today religion is kind of a four-letter word, right? I know it's eight letters. Come on now. But you get my point. Some say all religions are the same, so it matters not which one you follow. Others will say I'm spiritual, just not religious, so I live according to my own views, my own values. Guess what? Living according to your own views and values is itself a religious approach to life. It's not organized religion, but it is religious. Live this way, 
agree to these ways of living and life will go good for you. Or maybe you'll please the deity or maybe there's not a deity, but, but that is the virtuous life. In a sense, that's what religion is. Very simple definition of it. So if you think you're not religious, consider perhaps that you are. That you've accepted a way of looking at the world and living in the world which you believe is right and good. You have bound yourself in some sort of value system that you're trying to live out, right? So everybody's religious. Even the atheists, in, in some regards, are a religious person. But it's not just those who say they're not religious who disparage the word religion. Christians do too. Some Christians will say, well, Christianity is not a religion. It's, it's a relationship. And, and there's truth to that. But the truth about it is because Christianity is the one true religion that leads you into relationship with God. Consider this. God gave you a religion, a way to know him and to think about him and your fellow man. God gave you commands as to how life is to be lived and enjoyed and to prosper here on this earth. God gave beautiful temples and he gave priests with beautiful robes and altars and he gave Passover lambs and, and he gave circumcision and he gave baptism and he, and he gave the Lord's Supper. Uh, he gave us songs to sing and prayers to pray and he gave us his son um, who, who said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And then Jesus, as he was leaving this earth, said, go make disciples and Teach them everything that I've taught you. My friends, we've been given a religion, uh, but it is the true religion that leads you into a relationship with God. Now, instead of throwing out the word religion, maybe it's better to just properly define it. Now, James doesn't really define the word religion, but he does something helpful for us. In the last two verses, he uses the word religious or religion Three times. And instead of defining it, he gives us a word pictures of what true religion is. And what he shows us is that true religion is what? A heart made alive by the love and grace of God, whereby the person cannot help but live on earth, just as his heavenly father is in heaven. That's what we see here. We see this picture in three tests. The first test is in verse 27. It's the test of the bridled tongue. Notice it's a bridled tongue, not a silent tongue. It is quick to hear and slow to speak. And when it speaks, its words are full of grace and truth. So James states in verse 26, If anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is it's worthless. <laughs> All right. James links our tongues with our hearts. See, a heart that is cold to God and God's mercy and love is a heart that is cold to others who are made in God's image. When the heart is cold to God, it will be cold towards others. That's true, isn't it? If your heart beats not for God, but beats for yourself, your words are going to be selfish and self-centered. You will not be able to empathize with others. And yeah, you will, you will grow angry. 
So the first test is one in which you and I are to look inward and we're to ask, is the grace of our Heavenly Father implanted in me? As the Son of God has bridled His tongue towards me, do I live with a bridled tongue towards others? See, our tongues are an accurate index of what we are at the core of our persons, right? That's the first test of the true religion, a bridled tongue. By God's grace, um, it dwells richly in our heart. Our tongues are bridled. The second and third test come when our eyes are turned upwards. James writes in verse 27, religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father is, test number two, to visit orphans and widows in their infliction. Now, is James saying that that's all you got to do? Go find a, an orphan or two and go go visit some widows and then we're all done, right? No, no. What James is giving us is part for the whole. Part for the whole, right? Um, part for the whole, everyone. Uh, we are to give ourselves to all who are in need, but especially to those who are helpless to help themselves, like orphans, widows. What is James doing? He is saying, test your hearts. See if your heart beats like your father's in heaven. See, when you show care to orphans and widows, guess what? You are revealing the same heart that God has. You know, a number of times in the Bible, the Bible declares that God, God declares that he is a father of the fatherless and that he cares for widows. So guess what? If we're having our hearts transformed to be more like our heavenly father, we too will care for people who are in need and who can't help themselves and who can't begin to give to the church or they're constantly going to be in need of care, right? James is saying, Look to see if your Heavenly Father's heart beats within you. Now for the third test. James finishes by saying that pure religion that pleases God the Father is um, to keep oneself unstained from the world. James is saying, as you live in this world with the heart that your Father has, be sure and be careful not to let the brokenness and the corruption and the sin of this world can, um, affect you in how you live here on earth. Don't let it rub off on you. Now, in one sense, when the Bible speaks of the world, it's simply referring to God's creation. But we also realize that our world is broken and it's full of sin and temptations. And the world that we live in embraces values that utterly contradict God and his values. And so there's a battle, there's a test that every Christian undergoes, keeping oneself unstained from the world's contaminating influences. So James wants us to be vigilant concerning what we allow into our minds because what we allow into our minds creeps into our hearts and then into our words and into our actions and they can drive us far from God. So let me ask you, how would you say you're doing with these tests that God presents us here in James' letter? Has the gospel come alive in your heart so that you think like your Father in heaven has it made you quick to hear and slow to speak and slow to be angry? Has the gospel given you power to bridle your tongue? And has God's love taken up residence in you? Have you seen that God cares for the weak and the marginalized in our midst? 
Has his love in you and for you caused you to care for those who are living in affliction? And do you see that you need to be in the world, but not of the world? As we wrap up, I want to point us to a word that James uses at the end of his passage. The original readers of James' letter, they would have understood this word. They would know what it was pointing to. James says to keep oneself unstained from the world. Now, the Greek can also be translated with these words, without blemish. James, the brother of Jesus, knew that Jesus was the only one who walked this world without blemish. And the Jewish readers of this letter would have rightly thought of what? The the Passover lamb. Do you know of the Passover lamb? In Egypt, God told his people to sacrifice and have the Passover meal, to sacrifice a lamb, a very special lamb, a one-year-old lamb without blemish. And sprinkle the blood on the doorpost and eat this meal of unleavened bread. And by this unstained lamb, God's judgment passed over his people. You know, that ancient Passover meal points to that very first Lord's Supper in the upper room. Jesus, the unblemished Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, knew he was going to the cross. And he took bread, which represents his body, and the wine, which represents his blood, poured out for the sins of this world. And he offered it up to all who would believe in him. Jesus, the unstained Lamb of God, went to forgive to the cross to forgive people like you and me who are stained by the sin around us. So now as we turn to the Lord's Supper, may we be reminded that though we struggle and often fail to keep ourselves unstained in this world, we have an advocate, we have a substitute up in heaven who truly lived the unstained life for us and intercedes for us. This is a word that needs to be implanted in us this morning, does it not? And this word of God, which gives us new birth, be humbly implanted in us. May we grow as God is calling us to grow. May we not be satisfied with spiritual immaturity. May we come into the light and the the reign of God's word in our lives. May this word bless us as we become hearers and doers who are blessed with true freedom. And may this word of God test us. And find us faithfully living here before the one who has faithfully lived for us. Maybe be transformed by the word of God because by it, God gives life. And that life is good. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Oh, we confess we fall way short. We're thankful that your, your grace comes before the law. We're thankful that by your word, we not only receive new life, but ongoing life. We confess our lack of eagerness to stand before the mirror of your scripture. And yet it is so good when we do. So I pray that each of us would have the faith to allow your word to confront us and then to heal us. We pray. Amen.